Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. This episode of the EdUp Experience is sponsored by MDT Marketing. MDT Marketing is a digital marketing agency with a vision of creating education, marketing, and technology programs that improve people's lives. Specializing in student nurturing programs, digital advertising, marketing technology, and digital printing, MDT Marketing's seasoned team is entrusted by higher education institutional leaders to develop personalized communication strategies that are compliant and highlight what differentiates their institutions. Learn more about MDT Marketing at mdtmarketing.com. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. This is a special EdUp embedded episode with a very, very special guest, Dr. Bill Pepicello. He is the former president the University of Phoenix. Bill, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Joe. Thanks. It's a real honor, sir, to have you on. Um, for anybody that doesn't know or hasn't heard of the University of Phoenix, you've probably been living under a rock. Um, this is a university <laughs> that pioneered online learning, um, scaled online learning in a way that is yet to be duplicated, maybe never will be. Um, I think somewhere between five and seven hundred thousand students at the at the height of the university's uh, influence, and you were there for a long time, over twenty years, I think, at the University of Phoenix to see all of that happen. So um, to 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 say that this is a, an honor would be an understatement. And so, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that introduction. Well, it's it probably doesn't do you justice to be to be honest with you. And uh, you know, for for those of us that have uh, lived and breathed online education for years, uh, you know, uh, University of Phoenix was really a model for how online education could be scaled to working adults. And I think there are a number of universities out there trying to replicate that model. Forget for profit, nonprofit. You know, this. I, I don't want to call it just this. I, oh, I get upset, but this worthless conversation about tax status um, and the better yeah. conversation <laughs> about serving students, right? How did exactly. you achieve? How did you achieve such scale? I mean, that's the first question. And every university right now is in a survive and thrive mode, unless you're one of the big dogs. The rest of us are trying right. to figure out this online learning thing. How did you make it and scale it in the way that you did? Well, when I came to the university, um, we had about give or take 20,000 students in three states and uh, had just basically begun to do what was then called online learning. And it, uh, this was before Al Gore invented the World Wide Web. So the way we did uh, online learning was we had a server um, in Phoenix and there was a server in San Francisco. And the reason it was in San Francisco was that that's where John Sperling, the founder right. of University of Phoenix, lived. And the way we did it was I would, um, I started teaching, you know, before I did any administration, I would write a lecture, 
I would upload it to the server in San Francisco. My students would each access that server and download the lecture. They would then upload their reactions to the lecture. I would go to that server and download everything to my server in Phoenix and, and then respond to them one by one going back to the server in San Francisco. And if that sounds clunky and antiquated, boy, was it ever. Well, and you're also talking about, Bill, you're talking about the, like the, that whole internet yeah. Um, thing. Yeah. The upload and download. That is exactly correct. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was, that was a good imitation. You like that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that I'm getting to the, to the answer to your question was that no one else was doing anything even remotely like that. And we were being driven by John Sperling, who, somehow ahead of the rest of us saw that online and virtual uh, education was going to be a thing of the future. And so when, when the World Wide Web really uh, got hot in around the mid-1990s, the University of Phoenix knew everything there was to know about online learning at that point. And what we had to do was adapt what we knew to web-based uh, instruction. Right. So we were way ahead of the game, uh, and and that's what allowed us to uh, to expand quickly because no one else had any idea how to how to do any of this, and we didn't have a great idea, but we had a better idea than anyone else. Um, hmm. And so, at, uh, I can remember a number of meetings with John Sperling where he he came in. Um, and one of them was when he said, take this clunky thing we're doing and make it uh, uh, applicable to, uh, to the Internet. And we said, well, we can't do that. And he said, well, you better. Or I'll find somebody who will. Right. <laughs> and so uh, I've heard and stories. So we, yeah. <laughs> but he also, at that point, uh, one of those meetings said, you know, if you do this right, we'll have 100,000 students someday. And he left the meeting and we all said to ourselves, yeah, the old boy lost it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we went skyrocketed and it, it, mostly online, although we, we did have a, a large ground presence, as you know. But the online piece went very quickly uh, right. because as uh, early adopters of the Internet uh, found out that they could access education very easily, they came in droves. Uh, and we went quickly from from about 20,000 to 50,000 to 100,000. And then, as you said, um, eventually we were at over half a million students. Um, but th- I mean, it's part of the, the, um, the reason that we were able to scale that way, however, was that John Sterling also understood that online education wasn't just clicking a link and going to a website. And he made an enormous upfront investment in infrastructure mm-hmm. um, so that all the services, the, um, the course development, faculty training, everything was in place to, uh, to set us up for success. So let's fast forward a, a little bit, because I think that this is going to be the most valuable um, part of the discussion for our audience. Obviously, you've been watching higher education and you've seen 
higher education as a whole, particularly the traditional piece of higher ed, moved more quickly than it ever has before as it's been forced to in some way, some ways yep. uh, via COVID-19, right? All of a sudden, you have no choice. You have to move. Everybody, faculty, senates, administrators have to get over whatever internal barriers they had and we're moving online. That's just it. Um, yeah. There's a really good chance this is going to continue through halfway, maybe three quarters of next year uh, in our current state right now. I mean, I don't think anybody could predict the future, but it certainly doesn't look like it's going to turn around next week and we're all going to be back to whatever normal doesn't really exist for us anymore. So this new normal we live in, you know, it's it's online learning is a f foundational piece of it. So, you know, colleges and universities across the country have been um, prognosticators are coming on saying, look, look for closures. Schools, now it's gotten more competitive. More schools are online than never before. Differentiation is something that schools don't completely understand. What do we need to do is higher education uh, in general? Let's talk in general, and then let's talk maybe about a different, different types of universities. But what do we have to do to stay relevant in in I don't know. Let's just talk about the increased competition first. I mean, we have to stay relevant as independent institutions and get enough students right. to pay the bills. I mean, what's what's your outlook? Exactly. I mean, I think, frankly, a lot of it goes to um, transforming the business model of higher education. Uh, right now, traditional higher education is based on students in seats. And the business model is based on how many students are you going to have, how long are you going to keep them, um, and keeping the, the brick and mortar open. And as, as, as some institutions have gone online more and more, and some of them are, are major ones like Arizona State, um, here where I live in Arizona, um, you find places like um, MIT and Harvard even with, um, with an online presence. Um, as that happens, the uh, smaller institutions, those and those without um, good endowments, are, are simply going to have to find ways to adapt to um, the virtual uh, virtual education if they're going to survive. I think one of the keys to that, coming back to the point about the business model, is that. Uh, institutions of higher ed are going to have to understand that they need help, they need partners. And I, it, so that the simple answer, the easy, quick answer to your question is, the way traditional institutions are going to have to survive is to look for partners. Um, what do you mean by partners? Bill, what do you mean by partners? Let me interrupt you. But partners yep. of industry, partners in within universities, what is, par define partner for me. Okay, all, all of the above. Um, generally, what we call these partners are OPMs, online program managers. And right now, it's, it's places like um, iDesign, 2U, Noodle, um, Pearson to some extent. There's people who can help institutions um, adapt to online learning. And what I mean by adapt is teach them how to do course design for online, teach them about faculty development for online, um, and, and show them that uh, managing online education is not only good academics, but it's good business to keep those institutions sustainable. 
Also, so to your point, Bill, just not, not to interrupt you, but just to add, sure. to help you market online uh, and to help yeah. you enroll students, because there's a, you know, one of the things that I'm hearing a lot is this difference between active and passive enrollment. Universities, okay. right? Somebody's knocking on the door, I'm going to take 5% of the applicants, I'm going to sit back and just sort of write paper and let these people into my university. Now, all of a sudden, competition heats up. I've got to go out and proactively market my differentiation, and I need to go and actually recruit a student, which is a whole lot different than sitting back waiting for him to come. That's a great point. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I discovered at University of Phoenix, because we were often accused of aggressive marketing, was that the, the marketing is, is different now than it ever was. For instance, and I'll, I'll use ASU, kind of not being critical, but simply um, describing their basic process. When AS, ASU or Ohio State or any, any large university does their marketing, they already know, excuse me, who their, who their student is. They have a profile of that student. And so they know exactly how to market. At University of Phoenix, we were marketing to people who had no idea that education was accessible to them. They were first generation or no generation students, uh, at risk students, um, students who, uh, who were, not, uh, were not wealthy and didn't realize that there was an opportunity for them. So now what traditional institutions are faced with, to your point, is that there are students out there who don't know that they can access higher education at name brand institutions online. Uh, and so number one, those institutions need to let people know they have an online presence. And number two, they need to understand that marketing online is going to attract a different kind of student than they might have been used to. Ooh, that's, that's interesting. Um, let's stay there for a second because I, you know, I agree. First of all, I agree with everything you're saying. In fact, I, I, um, I'm one of those people that goes, um, you now take university, uh, traditional university that typically hasn't invested a lot in marketing. Okay. Um, marketing, right. when you're talking about spend, spending money, traditional universities don't spend that much money. It, it's the non-traditional universities that have spent more money. And to your right. point about University of Phoenix, not only did you have to tell people that this education was accessible, you had to convince them that online was a viable methodology to get that education. That, that compounds marketing cost. So you're spending more money than you would. It's not just get your education, it's get it online. And here's the benefits of online. And here's where you go online. So you weren't just selling the access, you were selling the idea of how to get it, which uh, it costs more, right? I mean, all of those things cost money. Absolutely, because uh, there's sometimes a false dichotomy between high touch and high tech. Um, but high tech also means you have to be high touch. Because mm. if, you, if you're not always in real time, you can't always see your students or your faculty, you need to have a whole different approach to the art of teaching. It's not the same. I mean, one of the things people don't know about me is I spent 20 years as a research professor. Mm. And I have taught everything from 
200 students in an introductory English class to uh, Latin symposiums with graduate students. And the art of teaching that way face-to-face -face, is completely different from connecting with students online. And that takes an investment of money because faculty and students both have to be um, integrated into this new digital ecosystem um, in which they're gonna, uh, they're gonna live. So you're out there, you, you have been in the industry long enough. I'm guessing you have a few contacts that are still active in, in oh, schools yeah. and universities, probably on a few boards, I'd guess. Um, do you think that higher education is prepared for the, the, I don't know if it's the long-term because I think over the long-term we're gonna see more hybrid type of models come in and might even be seeing that a little bit now. But, but are, yeah. is higher ed prepared for the short and medium term of delivering in this new normal, competing in this new normal, spending in the new normal? And I have to think of it like this is the way I think of it, Bill. I'm in marketing enrollment. I've been in marketing enrollment for so long. And I think if, if I was my old self at a traditional university and I've never marketed, could I compete against myself right now with 20 years of, of online marketing experience? I think I'd be scared to do that. And I'm, I'm in a small institution, but if you look at Southern New Hampshire and Arizona State, I mean, it's hard to compete. It's hard to get market share. Are we ready for this? Yeah, I mean, it, you, you wouldn't just be scared. I mean, you, you wouldn't know how to do it, which is why you'd be scared. But no, the, the, the quick answer to that question is no, I don't think higher education is, uh, is ready. Um, you're seeing part of, and part of the reason I say that is what we've seen uh, this fall at many institutions is they have decided they're going to try to open brick and mortar classes. And it's been a disaster. Um, yeah. Students are being sent home. They're being suspended for weeks at a time. Um, and then when that happens, those institutions have to figure out very quickly how to save those students. And the way that they're trying to save them is through some type of, of online instruction that they're not really ready for. And I've been talking with a, a number of, of institutions and with some, some organizations, companies that are trying to work with those institutions to, to quickly construct what I just called a, a digital ecosystem. So that, uh, and what I mean by that is, is a basic platform where there are student services, there's academics, um, there are digital resources like library and, and, and other course resources all in, in one place so that it, it really is a, a virtual campus for lack of a, of a better term. One of the things that we've seen with the reopenings, as you suggest, is students coming on campus, right? Uh, parties, kids getting sick, getting sent home, you know, all of these things happening. And I know from talking uh, from EdUp talking to a number of college presidents across the country, the amount of investment that it's taken for the PPE, right, the personal protective equipment to bring students back, right, the testing, the tracing, the the all of these things that cost so much money. And you made me just think, what if I had taken all of that money and just moved everybody online for the foreseeable future? How much more yeah. of a robust platform I could have had instead of trying to fight 
the the I don't know trying to fight something I can't see a virus that is mutating. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of a lot there, and you wonder <laughs> is it is it holding on to traditionalism? You think that that uh, will prevent some institutions from moving forward in that way? It's it's in large part it's that, and it, it takes me back to you know, you're the one who brought up money, Joe, but it brings me back to the to, to the business model. You know if if you put all that money into PPEs that you could have invested into online, you would have made an investment for the long term. Now, the you know PPEs and all those sorts of things that are that are short-term band-aids. Um, in at the end of the day, it's not money well spent for higher education. It would be much better to have that money spent for online now and then assuming in the future that it will be possible for at least some institutions to reopen brick and mortar they will then have their original business the brick and mortar and the the online business that they developed as a uh, as a response to covid so that if they were if they had a longer term view of, uh, of how this all works they could really develop a business model that would, in the future, I think, stand everyone in good stead because everyone would have that flexibility to go virtual or, uh, or face-to-face, at least those who, who survive in the short term. So let's talk about the business model piece just a little bit more in depth. And, and um, you know, I think, the fir- I think the first thing to, to um, say to the audience, at least from my perspective, and Bill, I'm just going to assume you agree with me. Education yeah. is a business and students are consumers. Those are, those are I, I, I mean, I'm hoping you agree, but those are basic tenets when you're talking about financial models is you have a customer and you have uh, a business. And if we don't take that into consideration when we're talking about higher education, you're, you're an institution in my mind who's already lost. Um, that, that's, that has to be, there's a trans, a monetary transaction and a service that the student is paying for now, albeit it's a different kind of service, but it is foundationally a transaction. Um, what kind of business models are out there? What kind of ideas or things have you seen when you say business model changes, what might that look like? Um, blue sky, you know, uh, for institutions considering it. Well, but to start, let me just say I do agree with everything you've said. You know, education has always been looked at as a public good. And we've always said it's, it's above the fray. It's not really part of the business of, of, of the United States. However, especially as, um, as we have become more technologically advanced, education is not just a public good. It's also a commodity. Um, a service. And higher education still sort of fights that. Um, And it's part of the reason that places that some institutions are in trouble. Current business model is very simple. You've got state funds, you've got federal funds, and you've got private funds, which are tuition and, if you're lucky, an endowment. If you're lucky. That's not a sustainable... If you're lucky. You know, you're, that's not a sustainable model anymore. State funds are drying up. And in some states, they're basically gone. 
federal money is depends on who's in power. Um, and, you know, tuition, you, you can't sit that third leg on the student's back with tuition. Um, so that business model is, is simply not very viable. Now, what sorts of models are out there? Lots of them. Um, we have lots of what we, uh, I will call, I'll use the ugly term, for-profit. Um, How dare you? How dare you, Bill? I'm, I'm sorry, but I couldn't help it. I'm retired. Nobody's going to fire me. Um, <laughs> but when you, when you look at successful companies, and they are, they're for-profits, um, the models are there. Higher education doesn't have to reinvent itself. They need to, to look at successful um, models and see how they could adapt useful parts of those models to higher education. To, uh, so there are a couple of ways to do that. One is you look at the Purdue Kaplan. Yeah, that's a good one. Mm -hmm. um, and there are more of those coming along. Um, Grand Canyon University um, now is separate from Grand Canyon Education. And Grand Canyon Education, which is a publicly traded um, corporation, is a service provider to Grand Canyon University. When I was at University of Phoenix, the Apollo Group, which was our, uh, uh, our parent company, was a service provider to the University of, of Phoenix. And that's what OPMs are now. And you're gonna see more and more of that kind of partnership because it, it allows traditional higher education to not have to try to completely retool the business model. Because well, and you, you, to your point, Bill, to your point, and one of the most recent ones yeah. I think we've seen is the Arizona, Arizona University uh, buying, um, uh, boy, Ashford, I think it was. Ashford. And and there's yeah. the third party OPM built in there, right? So the transaction's $1 with, and then there's a 10 or 15 year <laughs> OPM contract yeah. built in, but that's the way Arizona goes online. They're instantly online <laughs> provider, right? Interested in some fresh marketing ideas that have been real world tested by colleges and universities and actually work? We'd love to share. Come download MDT Marketing's free 2020 Marketing Strategies Guide, filled with stats and highlights on digital marketing initiatives exclusively for colleges and universities. Download the Strategies Guide for free at learn.mdtmarketing.com. MDT Marketing has been a leader in delivering marketing solutions for institutes of higher education since 1995. Come leverage our knowledge and download our strategies guide at learn.mdtmarketing.com. So that's exactly right. I mean, that's, that's one model that I think people tend, seem to think that um, those kinds of relationships, online program management, that somehow that stands in opposition to traditional higher education. My, my take on things like Kaplan-Purdue is that that is, we're seeing the evolution of the next model of higher education. It's gonna be a model that is responsible, not just academically, but also financially. And so one, one of the things that, one of the ways that's being done is to 
uh, find the synergies between places like Kaplan and places like Purdue and build on that. And you're right, we're seeing more and more of that. You know, another, another potential model um, are corporations like Pearson, uh, which people think of as a publishing house, basically, right. and certainly what they started as. But if you, if you pull apart Pearson, um, what you'll see is that it is, an, it is its own ecosystem. They have content lots of content from all over the place. Um, they could very easily get talent, and by talent, I mean course developers or faculty, because there are plenty of those people out of business right now, good ones. Yeah. And they, they could, in fact, if they had a mind to, um, probably develop themselves into an educational institution which would already have a viable business model as part of the way it operates. Now that's sort of way out of the box, but I think it's only look at from being out of the box for now. Yeah. Um, There's also consortial going, models that are becoming more common, yep. you know, groups of institutions um, that either a are giving up their independent decision-making to join, join a consortium or, or, you know, what they're calling synthetic mergers, which basically shared services model while remaining your independence. So that that's becoming more common shared services is one of the ways that institutions are at least buying themselves some time until they figure out, you know, that, that, that's where you end up going though, to cut costs um, because you can't scale, right. Or you don't know how to scale. That's, that's a tough place to be. Because I think everybody right. would prefer an independence, right? Being able to be an independent university, which is, is becoming oh, harder and well, harder. Well, there's, there's a good example of that out there right now in the state of Pennsylvania, um, which actually is my, my home state from 50 or 60 years ago. Um, the, 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 the Pennsylvania Higher Education Authority is trying to right-size itself. And they're doing it through a series of closures shared services, mergers, but as you rightly point out, it's, it's a short-term fix. Um, it's going to save some money, maybe, um, in, in the short to intermediate term, but in the long term, uh, you know, it, it, it's not, I think what they expect is after they get it right-sized, it's still going to look like a traditional university, just smaller, and right. I don't think I don't think that's the solution. Bill, what do you think about this? I've, I've asked this to a couple of our past guests. And, you know, one, as I said before, you know, the, the coronavirus hits and then there's all of this, um, all of this press about, you know, over the next year, you know, 15% of universities are going to close and yada, yada, yada. And I've always thought to myself, that's a year off. It's going to be two years from now, maybe two and a half because most universities, small, large, doesn't matter. They're going to use whatever year of operational costs they have, right? They're going to try to compete in an online space that they're forced to compete in now. It's going to take a year to 18 months to, for that university to figure out that they might have trouble or, or can't compete online. Online marketing is different than on-ground marketing, right? Um, and, and then we're going to see those closures. They're probably a year out from, from the end of the fall term. 
as universities really then try to try, you know, especially if coronavirus continues to extend into 2021, that, you know, by the end of 2021, you know, six months into 2022, and that those closures are as much going to be based on our, on the university's inability to compete in a marketing environment as anything else. Yes. I mean, I, I, I agree completely with that. And, and, and the second piece of that is, let's assume that they have some success with the marketing piece. You have to know what to do with those students once you get them. Because right. I, will, I will tell you that uh, from my experience, and I, I'm going to guess you've seen some of the same thing in your experience, online students don't hang around very long if they're not happy with what, what the product is. Now, they, they just disappear. Yes. And, and they can do it with impunity because it's not like if you're in a, if you're in a brick and mortar uh, operation. Um, I mean, I can remember I was at an institution once where when students didn't show up at class, I went to the dorm and knocked on your door mm-hmm. and said, I know you're in there. Come out and get my class. And that, that's not the way the world works anymore. Well, that's a really good point. And, and you know, leadership, we're talking about university leadership. So I invest in marketing. I get some students. I put them into my current leadership infrastructure, which includes um, a, a lot of people who don't know online education. And now I'm responsible for retaining online students without the infrastructure to be able to do so. That's a big problem. Exactly. Exactly. And, and one of the things I'm... I'm also, at the moment, I'm the chair of the board of trustees at American Intercontinental University, which is almost 100% online. It's about 95% online. And you know, probably one of the major focuses there, and it needs to be at other places if it's not already, is how do you keep the students through the first two or three courses? Because once you, you keep them and get them into a, a digital rhythm, as it were, you're much more likely to retain that student. And I think that's where folks who aren't as familiar as they ought to be with online education uh, fall down because they make the promises you're going to have this great experience and then people come. And frankly, you know, when you said that students are consumers, students are, are very savvy consumers of online services. I'm thinking of Amazon, for instance, any number of places now where you can you can order shoes online, food online. Um, my favorite example of uh, of example of, of um, you know paradigms that higher education can look at is banking. Mm. Now I, I know where my local bank is. And it's a very attractive building, and inside there are uh, pleasant, well-groomed young people who always greet me and are, are willing to help me. But most of the time, I don't want to talk to them. Everything that I can do by myself online, I want to do, and I don't need them. But when I do need them, I expect them to be there and to be able to do what I need. Higher education needs a model that's more like that, where it's seamless from brick and mortar to to virtual. And 
and you need to understand what sorts of services require face-to-face -face and what, what kinds don't. But, you know, when students have that kind of, of access and ease of navigation in other areas online, and then education becomes a challenge because, you know, oh, I've got to, I've got to log in so many times a week, and I have to have a, a strict schedule. They don't see that as part of that experience that they enjoy online. To the same same theme, right? So I'm a, a, a university. I've moved to online by choice or by force. Doesn't matter. Over yep. the last twelve months. I've invested in um, creating an infrastructure. I've taken however many hundreds of courses, moved them online. I've taken faculty that maybe have never taught online, and I've moved those faculty to be able to teach online. Right now, I think I'm really successful at doing that because my faculty moved fast. My, I'm in my fall term. Everything seems to be going okay because the students are also experiencing this possibly for the first time. Now another term goes by. And another term goes by and the real hard parts of online learning set in, uh, particularly from the faculty perspective. Now, it's not just one term, it's multiple terms. The student savvy, student consumer you mentioned that can get a pair of shoes delivered in less than 48 hours is expecting a, a level of contact, a level of service and support from their institution. Now, my faculty is past that first term and now they're, they're going to be on getting used to these things and you wonder are institutions properly investing in faculty development for online learning beyond just this one term, that it's a continual investment that has to be made, especially in people that haven't been, been teaching online for a very long period of time. It's going to be hard to continue that success without defined investment in faculty development. Do you think that, that there's any merit in that statement um, and, and foresight institutions you think looking at that going, oh man, this is just the beginning. We need to make sure that we have money invested in making sure faculty are good. Yeah, I, well, your, your uh, uh, statement certainly demonstrates foresight. I mean, and you're, you're exactly right. Um, but I don't think that institutions are looking at that at the moment. Faculty development right now is focused on the short term. How can I get some, some faculty who can teach a small set of, of classes? And sometimes institutions are sacrificing the longer term. So, I mean, one of the things that uh, is inherent in, in your comment is there needs to be an ongoing faculty development program that needs to be not just by discipline, but by degree level, and importantly, by what kind of student you have. If you have a, uh, an at-risk student, um, that student has to be dealt with in a much different way than uh, a, a student who goes directly from high school into uh, the university and has the means to, to pay tuition. Contrast that with a student who is, uh, you know, heavily burdened with uh, financial aid, who probably has to work, maybe a single parent. Um, that kind of student just doesn't relate to 
to that more traditional kind of student. And more to the point, faculty have to understand in ways they haven't before that these students need a, a completely different kind of, of approach if you're going to retain them and help them um, get through the, the curriculum, whatever it may be, whether it's a, you know, a certificate or a degree program or whatever, and become productive members in their communities and society. Do you think, uh, let me ask you this, Bill, and I'll ask you my final, uh, my final question. Is there, you're probably, you're going to say no, because you're such a good guy, but is there any, <laughs> any moment where you look at higher education today and, and have, and I told you so moment, and here's why I ask you that. Higher education over the last couple of years has been doing things to open up their funnel at the top. One of those things is, is eliminating testing or doing testing waivers. A lot of that comes under the guise, in my opinion, of um, it, it has diversity inclusion ties to it. But when you're eliminating upfront testing, it's to get yourself more applicants. I don't really care how you put it. That's what it's there for. Yep. So you have more people applying your school. It doesn't matter why. Um, now, nonprofit uh, and public education, adding in free parkings, adding in, you know, you saw, you know, lazy rivers and, and um, you know, free, um, uh, you know, free room and board for the for the for the for the term because we want to try to repopulate our campuses, you know, uh, waiving application fees and it's and all of a sudden, it starts to look like you are incentivizing uh, in, uh, people to come to your school. Um, and, and you know, that's what we, and I say we because I grew up in, in for-profit higher education, which by the way, no institution in the world is, is against profit, whatever you call it, surplus or profit. Right. There's, no, there's no institution that says, oh no, we don't wanna make any money. Uh, so yeah. is there a moment where you just go, wow, this looks eerily similar uh, and uh, you know, uh, I don't know if it's a deja vu moment or pot calling the kettle black because we knew the for-profit education took it really hard for years because of, of their intent to scale. And now institutions mm -hmm. that are in trouble are trying to scale and they're doing very, uh, they're, they're offering incentives in a way that, you know, I don't know. I just, that's the question. Do you look at this and go, wow, that's interesting. Um, ironic, if you will. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not as nice a guy as you might think, because I, I, I do have, I told you so moments. And, and on occasion, I, I have the opportunity to tell people I told you so. Um, before I get to the funnel, you know, when we started online at University of Phoenix, we were reviled by higher education and by oh, yeah. the feds and by state governments. And everybody said, it's a fad, it will never last. So then we, we developed the first fully online library and we were reviled by state governments and creditors. And they said, it's a fad, it will never last. And then we developed virtual resources for our courses and we were reviled and I won't repeat the rest of it. And now everybody does that. You know, everybody's got a virtual library, everybody's online, everybody's going to virtual resources. And it's, there was a, uh, two instances. One is I was standing before an accreditor who was asking me about all these things, including 
how I could possibly, possibly take in students who were very high risk students. And I was being grilled by a, a panel of accreditors who were my peers. And my response to them at the time, and it still would be, is that at the University of Phoenix, I never ever apologized for serving the students that we served. We gave students that other institutions were simply not interested in. And other institutions sometimes flatly said, these students don't deserve the opportunity to access higher education. And we gave them that opportunity. And we didn't, you know, we didn't use words like diversity and inclusion in those days. What we used were words like providing access to high-risk students who otherwise were not going to have that opportunity. Um, and so now I, I do on occasion um, remind people as they're trying to uh, uh, pat themselves on the back for what they're doing is that, you know, we did it a while ago. And there are more than a million graduates from the University of Phoenix. Um, and I'm very proud of, uh, proud of that. It's funny that you say that because I, for years, I, I would hear um, people uh, say, oh, well, if you've graduated from a for-profit university and you put that in your resume, somebody's going to look at your resume and they're going to, they're going to look at that and they're not going to hire you based on where you went to school. And I always thought that yep. was just a load of it, right? That was just a load. And it's funny, I have, um, you know, how common it is because the for-profit universities did a great job extending education to adult students before extending education to adult students was even a thing. So there's a oh, lot, yeah. a lot of people out there that have are very, very successful individuals that, that graduated from for-profit universities, right? I mean, it's... It's, uh, it's just an interesting um, cycle. If this is, I mean, the coronavirus certainly sped up this cycle a little bit, but the comp great competition and uh, weak financial models in higher education was already there and already coming, right? It, it just moved yep. things along faster. Yeah, no, that mean, and that's one of the really interesting things now that I'm viewing things from the outside as opposed to being in the middle of the storm is to see how, you know, as, as higher education was sort of chugging along and chugging along, and suddenly coronavirus hit, and they went, oh, man, we, we got to yeah. get moving. Um, and it's painful. I mean, I, I, mean I, I, have, I have a lot of friends who are still in the, in the for-profit world, but I, I have, uh, you know, a good network in higher education in general, and some of those people are really struggling. All right, Bill. So what is the, what's the future of higher education look like? I think the future of higher education is, is bumpy for maybe a decade. Um, some of it will depend on what happens with the, you know, with the new regime in Washington. Um, that, that will have some impact for sure on what, what happens in, in at least the next four, five, six years. But I think it's, it will take, and you alluded to this earlier, it, it's going to take a while for institutions to decide that they can or can't compete and that they are or are not willing to make the upfront investment. Um, but I think that the future is going to 
we're going to see fewer uh, institutions of higher education. I mean, we see that happening already. But I think in the long run, that will lead to a smaller number, but they'll be stronger of, of institutions that not only have a better business model, but have a, a better take on what they need to provide students, and what the link is between students and, um, and the workforce. Because for better or worse, that, that has to be one of the driving forces of, of higher education now. So I, I think we're gonna see, we'll see turmoil uh, for, for a good part of the next decade. But when we come out the other side, I think it's gonna be pretty exciting. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'll tell you, no matter what your opinion is of the University of Phoenix or for-profit education in general, uh, you're talking uh, and heard from a gentleman today that oversaw one of the largest, if not the largest university the United States has ever seen, uh, maybe the world, 500 plus, uh, 100,000 students. Uh, what a mistake not to take this information and uh, apply it to whatever your environment looks like. There is a reason uh, why the University of Phoenix grew so large. We could all take a, a lesson uh, from uh, Dr. Bill Pepicello today and uh, think about what the future looks like. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for coming on the Edip Experience special embedded episode. It was an absolute honor, and I mean it, uh, and a pleasure to talk with you today. Hope you enjoyed that episode. To learn more about the Edip Experience, please visit edupexperience.com. And if you want to be in on the live recordings, please sign up for our email list. Go to edupexperience.com and sign up to be a subscriber. We'll let you know how you can listen in live and get the scoop before anyone else does. So please, as always, feel free to share this podcast, rate, review, and subscribe. We would really, really appreciate that. You've been listening to The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business with your hosts, Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liva, and Elvin Freitas.